The Lord be with you. Self-righteous wrath makes us slaves, but God's grace restores us as beloved children. Let me explain what I mean by that. So, in our gospel lesson today, we hear the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and it is at heart the story of two sons whose sin makes them slaves. And the younger son is the more obvious of the two, right? The younger son goes up to his dad and says, Dad, you're worth more to me dead than alive. I don't care about my relationship with you. I just want my inheritance that I'll get when you're dead. So give it to me now. And as compared to what most fathers of that age would do, which would be to smack their son, this father actually gives his son what he asks for. He says, all right, you'd get, you know, a third of the property. I'll sell it. Here's the cash. Two days later, the younger says, bye guys, I'm off. I never want to see you again. He goes to a different land. And there it says that he squanders his wealth with dissolute living. Now, dissolute just basically means wasteful. Jesus doesn't give specifics on how the younger son wastes his money and his life. And it's a good reminder that this is a parable, right? This is not a history. It's a story that Jesus tells. And Jesus is telling this story Because the self-righteous religious people in his community are getting upset that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. And so Jesus is telling the story and he says, look, the younger son lives in a way that you disapprove of. Doesn't matter what it is. You just disapprove of it. Maybe he is spending all his money on prostitutes like the older brother thinks. Maybe he's spending all his money on Pac-Man. It doesn't matter. Right? The point is, it's a waste, and you don't like it. So whatever you think is the most dumb way to spend money, that's what the younger son was doing. And then after the younger son has spent all his money, a famine hits the land, which is to say the economy tanks. And suddenly, no one has money. Suddenly, no one has food. And I have noticed in life that there's two types of wealth. There's financial wealth, and there's relational wealth. And you can get by as long as you have one or the other, right? If you've got money in your bank account but no one likes you, you can survive. But if you don't have any money in your bank account and you have friends and family who love you, well, you can also survive, right? They'll give you a place to stay. They'll invite you over to dinner. People will take care of you. But say you run out of both. You don't have any money and you've burned all your bridges. Then you're in trouble. And that's where this guy is, right? He has rejected his identity as a son, He has left his community. No one knows him except for the wealth that he had, and now that wealth is gone. And so all he can do is hire himself out. And the person who hires him sends him to feed his pigs. And of course, to a Jewish person, pigs are the epitome of an unclean animal. So not only has this younger son abandoned his identity as a son, He's abandoned his identity as a countryman, but now he's abandoned his identity as a Jewish person, as a member of his religious community. Every part of who he is is completely gone, and he's still starving. It says that he would gladly feed himself with the food that the pigs were eating, but no one will give him anything. He has rejected every single identity he has, and so now he is no one. But in that moment, it says that he returned to himself. 
In that moment when he was no one, he remembered that he used to be someone. And who he used to be was the beloved son of a father. And he remembers, wait a minute, my father, he treats his slaves better than I'm treated now. And the son says, I may, because of my sin and shame, I may no longer be worthy to be my father's son, but maybe I could be good enough to be his slave. The younger son's sin and shame has made him into a slave. But it's not just the younger son who becomes a slave. It's also the older son. We hear the older son when his brother comes back, the older son comes in from the fields and he heals, hears a party is going on, a big old celebration. He asks what's happening and he finds out that his father has slaughtered the, the fatted calf for this younger brother who has returned. And it says in that moment he gets angry and refuses to go in. He refuses to go into the celebration. So this is where we get to the idea of wrath. But I want to make a distinction here between anger and wrath. Anger says there's something wrong, and I'm now angry about it, so now I want to restore and fix the problem so that the relationship can be restored. Wrath says there's something wrong, so now I'm done with you. I want to destroy you. Right? Anger says something's wrong. Let's do something about it so we can be restored. Wrath says something's wrong. I want you to be destroyed. So, for instance, my dog loves to chase skunks. And she always likes to do it late at night, right before we go to bed, particularly Saturday night before I have to preach on Sunday morning. She goes and she finds a skunk in our backyard. She gets sprayed, right? In those moments, I get so angry. Wrath would be, that's it. You're going to the pound. I never want to see you again. Anger says, we got to find a solution so that this doesn't happen anymore because I want you to be my dog and live in my house, and it can't happen the way it's going. Right? Wrath gets rid of the dog. Anger finds a solution. And it's the same thing with my daughter. My six-month-old daughter, in the middle of the night, she'll start screaming just red with anger. But she's not wrathful, right? She doesn't want mom and dad to go away forever. She wants mom and dad to come close. What she's angry about is that we're not with her. The solution to her anger is for us to be restored as a family. Anger can be helpful. It can be productive if it's us seeing something that's wrong and anger gives us the energy and the motivation to fix it. But wrath just burns everything down. This older brother, in the moment, it says he is angry, but he also refuses to go in. Anger would be him saying, what? My younger brother squandered our family wealth, and now he thinks he can come back. I need to go have a talking to this guy and set him straight so we can be brothers again. That's not what the older brother does. The older brother says, I don't ever want to see that guy again. It's wrath that, ref it's wrath that makes him refuse to go in. Now, here's the thing. Why would the older brother feel this way? Why would he have such wrath? He goes and he tells the father exactly why. And it has less to do with the younger brother and more to do with the older brother's relationship with his dad. He gives us three reasons, and they're a nice review of the seven deadly sins that we've covered so far. So first of all, he says, I 
I have stayed here working for you like a slave. The implication is in comparison to the younger son, who of course went and had a grand old time, lived his life to the fullest, sounds a lot like envy to me. Right? As if somehow spending all your money so that no one knows who you are, carrying who you are, and you're finding yourself trying to eat the food of pigs, somehow that was a better life. Yeah, definitely. But so first we hear envy from the older brother, and second we hear pride. He says, well, in comparison to that younger brother, I have never once disobeyed you. Right? That hubris, that, that sense of self-worth that comes through comparison. And third, he says, and yet you have never given me even a young goat to celebrate with my friends. We started off the seven deadly sins with sloth, and and one of the things I talk about is how unspoken expectations are premeditated resentments. And you can hear the resentment dripping in the older son's voice. And you have to wonder, but did you ever actually ask your dad for a goat? To go celebrate with your friends? Or were you just stewing there in your resentment, being like, oh, dad's never given me anything? And so you just checked out of your relationship with your dad. And you realize that this older son may have stayed home the whole time, but in doing so, he has made himself a slave to his father because he believes that he has to obey his father perfectly that he has to work himself to the bone. Why? So that he can someday get the inheritance that he desires, so that he doesn't get punished or destroyed? And you hear in that the rationale for why his brother needs to be destroyed, why his brother needs to be cut out. Because if I worked myself in this way, if I made myself a slave to get the inheritance and not get kicked out, well, to justify what I went through, we have to now do what I was afraid of to him who didn't do what I did. Built into wrath is a self-righteousness. Because to justify the destruction of someone else, we have to say their sin is a heinous sin, and it's also one that I haven't committed. And it's also one that I would never commit. I could never commit a sin like that, which is why they're justified in being destroyed. Because... If there's a chance that we would commit that same sin, well, we would never destroy them lest we ourselves become destroyed. And because of this, wrath makes us slaves to self-righteousness. Because if people can be destroyed for their sin, we have to live in fear that we might commit that same sin and be destroyed ourselves. Wrath makes us a slave to self-righteousness. And it's something that I've seen in my life, in our culture, twice. Back in the 90s when I was a kid, it was known as purity culture. Today, it's known as cancel culture or call-out culture. And they act in the exact same ways. Back in the 90s, I remember, uh, right, it it was all about your sexuality. And anyone who deviated from the prescribed sexuality was cut off from the Christian community. I remember uh, Christian pop artists would sing praise songs until some lady, she got divorced, and suddenly her CDs were being pulled from bookshelves. Also remember, it started to extend to what you read and and the games that you play. I had to explain to a friend's parent that the kid could play with me even though I read Harry Potter. Yeah? Harry Potter is witchcraft, 
And so, I don't know if my kids should be associating with you who are dabbling in witchcraft. No. What? But of course, in the early 2000s, dozens of these pastors preaching purity culture get caught with their pants down. Literally. There was no grace that these pastors preached for anyone else, and they got no grace in return. Today, we call it cancel culture or call-out culture, and it has less to do with your personal sexuality and more to do with the social opinions that you express, particularly online. And people quickly find out that if they express something that does not line up with the will of the crowd, suddenly there will be a mob wielding digital pitchforks, calling for the end of their career, for the silencing. And one of the curious things is the people who are most vocal about calling out others inevitably get called out themselves, inevitably get canceled themselves. Cultures of wrath eat their own. And they result in people who walk on eggshells lest the wrath be brought down upon them. In the moment, wrath makes us feel all-powerful, but in the end, it makes us all slaves. Slaves to righteousness. Praise be to God, this parable of the prodigal son is not just about two sons whose sin makes them slaves. It is also the story of two slaves whose father restores them as sons. For the younger son, it is most obvious. The younger son starts walking home hoping to just be his father's slave because his sin and shame makes him believe he's not worthy to be his father's son. But while he is still far off, his father sees him. Almost as if that father has been waiting every single day, looking over the horizon, hoping beyond hope that his son might come back today. Because as soon as that father sees his son who has squandered his inheritance, who has said, Dad, I wish you were dead, that father runs. That father runs as fast as he can in a culture where fathers are revered, right? This is a patriarchal culture in which elders are venerated to say for a father, a wealthy father, a father who is the head of an estate, for a father like that to run is to bring shame upon himself because others are supposed to come to him. But he doesn't care about that shame. He cares about his son, and so he runs. He runs and he wraps his boy in his arms and says he gives him a big old kiss. And then his son hasn't even gotten a chance to get a word out edgewise. His son starts to confess. He says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. I should just be your slave. And the father doesn't even give that confession the time of day. The father says to his slaves, bring, bring gifts, bring a robe, the best one. Bring a ring for his finger, bring sandals for his feet. Clothe him with garments of glory that he might know we are rejoicing that he is home, that he is my son. And then slaughter the fatted calf. We must rejoice. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. The father has this extravagant show of love and generosity so that the son might know his sin and shame could never make him cease to be the father's son that he is and always will be a beloved child. But the amazing thing is the father does all this not just for the younger son. The father does this for the older son also. In the same way that the father runs out to see the younger son, the scriptures also tell us that the father goes out from the feast 
to greet his younger son, to plead with him to come in. But the father doesn't give the older son trinkets or a party. The father gives the older son everything. The father gives the older son himself. He says, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. Not future tense, not someday I will die and all that I have will be yours. But right now, you've wanted to go. Why didn't you just ask? I would have gladly given it to you. But the greatest gift that the father gives the older son is the mercy that he has shown the younger son. Because in the way that the father treats the younger son, the father is showing the older son what it means to be his son. He says, do you think my relationships to my children are built on wrath? No, it is not true for the younger son and it is not true for you. Have you been working yourself like a slave because you think that's what it takes to get from me what you want? No. You could not obey every single word. You could not work for me like a slave. You could ask for me what you want, and you would still be mine. I would still love you. Why are you making yourself a slave, son? You are my beloved child. Set yourself free. And this is what Jesus does for us. Jesus is God running towards us even when we are dead in sin. Jesus is the one who runs towards us and embraces us, gives us that big kiss, says, do you think sin and shame can separate you from being God's beloved child? See how much I love you. I am willing to go to the cross to show that there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. The father gives the son garments, rings, and sandals. In baptism, we are given those same gifts. In baptism, we are clothed with the robes of righteousness. We are given the ring of royalty. We are given the sandals of salvation on our feet. It is a tangible way that we can feel in our body God's love. The father throws a feast for the younger son, and Jesus does the same for us with the feast of the Eucharist. Jesus feeds us with his body and blood that we might know he is always with us. We have these sacraments not as prizes for saints, but as medicine for sinners. We give them to anyone, no matter how bad they are. And we do it here publicly so that when we are feeling self-righteous because we attend church, we might see the people who spent their life in dissolute living, spending all their money on Pac-Man, and we say, wait a minute. That person gets communion too? That person gets the waters of baptism even though they live that way? And it is a reminder for us that we are not slaves that God wants more than anything to give us the fullness of God's kingdom. That we do not obey God's command out of fear of destruction or an attempt to earn our inheritance. But we come home to God because as a beloved child, there is no greater joy than to be in the presence of our loving Father. 2 Corinthians tells us that in Christ, we are reconciled to God, and so we are given a ministry of reconciliation. And Paul tells us that 
No longer do we regard anyone from a human perspective. Instead, we are called to regard everyone from God's perspective, to regard everyone as a father who is yearning to see their son once more, as a father who looks every day over the horizon, hoping beyond hope that their child will come home. That is how we are called to regard each and every person. And that is what the father invites the older brother to do. The father goes and he pleads, pleads with that older son, come in. Come into the banquet. Come in and celebrate. He calls his son in. There's a professor, a woman, a woman named Loretta Ross. And in the past few years, she's co coined a term that it goes like this. It's called calling in. And it's in contrast to calling out. Because Professor Ross had noticed in her own community, in the circles of justice work that she was a part of, the call-out culture was destroying those movements because people were turning on each other, finding every little slip-up as a reason to destroy one another. She said, this gets us nowhere closer to where we're headed. And so she said, instead of calling people out, let's call people in. And the difference between calling someone out and calling someone in is the difference between wrath and anger. Calling someone out says, you said something problematic, you're done. Calling someone in says, you said something problematic. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we can have a more life-giving relationship with each other and with others. And to do that requires acknowledging that we have received grace to be God's beloved children, even though we are imperfect, so that we might give that generosity of grace to others. Wrath. It makes us slaves to self-righteousness. But God's grace restores us as beloved children. So may we enter the banquet feast of our Heavenly Father, united as siblings in Christ. Amen.